3: From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. Fifty years ago today, incarcerated men at the Attica Correctional Facility in western New York took over the prison. 21-year-old Elliot Barkley spoke for them.
4: We are men. We are not beasts and we do not intend to be driven or beaten as such. The entire prison populace has set forth to change forever the ruthless brutalization and disregard for the lives of the prisoners here and throughout the United States.
3: Before the next week was over, the world had changed. We look back at the Attica Prison Rebellion, a milestone in both the creation of mass incarceration and radical organizing inside prisons. That's today on Forum after this news. Welcome to Forum, I'm Alexis Madrigal. It's September 1971. Richard Nixon is president, George Jackson, an incarcerated man and celebrated author of Soledad Brother, has just been killed at San Quentin Prison by guards. Attica Prison is an overcrowded, brutal correctional facility filled with black and brown people from the cities of New York, overseen by white guards from the small towns of Western New York. The food is borderline edible, prisoners barely have toilet paper, and they work for nothing, as we hear in the first of these cuts from a 1972 Pacifica radio documentary, We Are Attica. They got a modern-day slave labor camp,
1: such as the metal shop. Look at the wages that they pay you. It's nothing. You sweat in a 105 degree little room big as this all day, cutting steel. But at the end of the month, you get a minimum slave wage, 40 cents, 30 cents,
3: in that category, a day. Prison guards work to keep white, Puerto Rican, and black prisoners separate as a means of maintaining power inside the walls. Like in, in prison, we're all discriminated against because we're, we're prisoners, see? But there
1: are uh, uh, certain groups that are discriminated against more. For instance, the blacks are discriminated against more because of official racism. They are discriminated against more. But the whites are discriminated against too. They are discriminated against uh, because maybe of ethnic backgrounds. If you're a Jew, if you're Italian, you know? Personal basis with the correctional officials, you know, they hate uh, when you mix. This, this they despise when uh, the different nationalities, you know, mix black, white, brown. They don't like that. They do anything in their power to try and keep that, de- you know, separation.
3: And if anybody stood up for the rights of those incarcerated, they became a target for abuse. And their
5: attitude to, towards you is, like I said, if you rub it, you're all right. They'll call you you're a good boy, and any small favors they can do for you to do. But if you take a position that you stand up and you speak about things, then you're all, all of a sudden you're a horrible person. Either you're, you're a communist, see, you become a radical. You become a lot of things other than a man, you see. Anything they want to label you, that's what, they be, that's what you become.
3: So on September 9th, after a fairly routine altercation between imprisoned people and guards, a riot broke out that ended after a series of improbable events with inmates in charge of the prison. And so began the Attica Prison Rebellion, one of the bloodiest, most important moments in American history, both for those who architected the structures of mass incarceration and those who have fought for prison reform and abolition. Here to talk about the rebellion, as well as its lasting echoes, are Mariam Kaba, founder and director of Project Nia, which works to end incarceration of children and adults by promoting restorative and transformative justice practices. She's also the author of Attica Prison Uprising 101, a short primer. Welcome.
6: Thank you for having me.
3: We're also joined by Ori Burton, a social anthropologist and assistant professor at American University. He's also currently working on a book titled Tip of the Spear The Long Attica Rebellion and Prison Pacification in the Empire State. Welcome, Ori.
7: Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure.
3: So, while most accounts agree that sort of the exact moment of the prison takeover was spontaneous, In your work, you've both highlighted the organizing and planning that had been happening before that single moment in time. So, Mariam, can you speak to the ideas animating what became known as the Prisoners' Rights Movement?
6: Sure. Um, I think, you know, it's important to note that from the beginning of the first prison in the United States, um, the Walnut basically the Walnut Jail in Philadelphia in 1790. Uh, From the start, people who were incarcerated have been agitating and organizing um, for better conditions. And I think that, you know, that's really important. The entire history of the penitentiary in the United States and jailing of people is a conversation about supposed reform. So I wanna begin there. Um, the folks who are in the inside at Attica in particular had been organizing prior to 1971, specifically to improve the conditions that were there. You mentioned at the beginning that the food was not edible, that people were working um, for basically no wages, slave labor, that there was inordinate amounts of violence and torture of people on the inside. So whenever those conditions exist, there are people who are organizing to end it. I would also add that the um, we can't take the prison out of the context of the country itself. Prisons, even though people try to make them spaces of isolation and rupture, are actually a set of different relations that we have. Um, people who are incarcerated have families, they come from communities, they are still trying to connect to the politics of the country. And so um, particularly in the 60s and in the 70s, incarcerated people were being very politicized by what was happening in the country in general. So the Black Freedom Movement had it's echoes within um, prisons, but it also was driven from incarcerated people, their ideas, their politics, their um, analysis about what it meant to be basically, uh, a caste system within um, a a larger colony. So um, yeah, so I think those are things that I want people to think about when they think about prisons, not prisons in isolation, but prisons, within a larger framework.
3: Yeah. Yeah, Thank you for that wonderful answer. Uh, Ori, inside Attica, there was a small group of men who called themselves the Attica Liberation Faction, which, as Mariam was describing, were sort of tapped into the political currents, both, you know, between different prisons in New York and California and around the country, as well as to the larger political currents of the day. Can you tell us about the work that they did to try to improve conditions that summer before the rebellion?
7: Sure. Well, I'll talk about the Attica Liberation Faction, but I I also wanted to first echo everything that Mariam just said, which is exactly right to locate the prison within this longer genealogy, but also to kind of um, resituate the Attica Rebellion. Right. So it, it definitely erupts exactly 50 years ago today, and that's in a momentous occasion that we should lift up and remember. Um, But it was part of, as Mariam argued, uh, a protracted period of political education, self-organization and rebellion that preceded that time. So, you know, in my work, I talk about the long Attica rebellion, which accounts Mm -hmm. for the fact that in the summer and the fall of 1970, a series of rebellions and strikes and militant demonstrations occurred in all nine of the jails in New York City simultaneously, including the Women's House of Detention. One of the key organizers of the strike that occurred or the rebellion that occurred in the tombs was Herbert X. Blyden who would later be shipped to Attica and who was the primary organizer of the Attica Liberation Faction. Um, The New York City Jail Rebellion featured participation from political prisoners, by which I mean, radical and revolutionary organizers who were in prison because of their political beliefs and activities including but not limited to those who were targeted by the FBI counterintelligence program. So I'm talking about the Panther 21 and other Mm -hmm. Panthers. I'm talking about Samuel Melville, who also ends up in Attica. I'm talking about members of the Young Lords Party. I'm talking about two Taiwanese dissidents who were in jail for attempting to assassinate the vice premier of China. Um, And they engaged in this intense politicization effort. Um, Then another rebellion occurs in Auburn prison, um, which literally lasts eight months. It takes the prison authorities eight months to get it under control. And the way they get it under control is by shipping the most recalcitrant rebels in Auburn to Attica, which occurs in May of 1971. Now, all the while that this is happening, there's all kinds of organizing going on, including the Attica Liberation Faction, which grew out of a study group where Samuel Melville, Herbert X. Blyden and others were teaching themselves applied sociology, applied in the sense that they were using the tools of sociology to try to understand their immediate material conditions and try to figure out how to liberate themselves. And one thing that came out of that was this manifesto, which actually was largely appropriated from from an almost identical manifesto produced by, incarcerated people engaged in a labor strike in California. And so now we have some of that relationship between New York and California coming out. But yeah, again, I just like to echo this whole idea of sort of distending the genealogy of Attica uh, Mm -hmm. sort of backwards in time and and highlighting the fact that it's sort of a, a protracted process that is aimed not only at improving prison conditions, but also at abolishing prisons and advancing a global revolutionary process.
3: Yeah, no, I, I can appreciate that that there's a lot of continuity leading up to Attica, even if it was this moment of incredible rupture that drew you know, so much so much attention. Um, Mariam, leading up to this moment, we also had a, a major event in that George Jackson was killed in San Quentin by by prison guards. A moment that sort of brought a lot of incarcerated people um, together and in. in different uh prisons what effect did that have inside of attica
6: it had a huge effect um when you talk to the survivors of the massacre at attica and you talk to um kind of folks who knew those survivors um, many of whom are now a lot of the survivors of attica are now passed away Um, but that particular Event was galvanizing. One of the um, stories that I read in my research was that um, people came to uh, the mess hall um, the day that George Jackson was uh, assassinated or the day after um, wearing armbands and coming and doing a kind of a silent protest where you could basically not even hear, you know, you could hear a pin drop because they would just, they just came into the mess hall and sat silently completely. And um, people were very worried in terms of the authorities, like what's really going on here. Um, And so I think that folks were, George Jackson has a particular um, place kind of in the intellectual history of, um, you know, prisoner created analysis and was just deeply respected by incarcerated people and people on the outside for how he thought about racism and uh, fascism within the U.S. Um, And so, yeah, it just a huge, huge impact in terms of Jackson. Um, And I think, you know, to this day, Jackson's work is so central to any sort of analysis of the prison and prison abolition. Oh, yeah.
3: We're talking about the 50th anniversary of the Attica Prison Rebellion with Mariam Kaba, organizer and founder and director of Project Nia, and Ori Burton, a social anthropologist and assistant professor at American University's Department of Anthropology. Do you remember the Attica Prison Rebellion or the killing of George Jackson at San Quentin? Give us a call, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more after the break. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Welcome back to Forum. We're talking about the 50th anniversary of the Attica Prison Rebellion and its many echoes and reverberations through time. And we do want to hear from you. Do you remember this moment in 1971? Have you been affected by the carceral state in the years since? Give us a call now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at... KQED Forum, or you can email your questions or comments about this event and this period to forum at kqed.org. We're joined by Mariam Kaba, an organizer, founder, and director of Project NIA, which works to end incarceration of children and adults by promoting restorative and transformative justice. She's also the author of Attica Prison Uprising 101. We also have Ori Burton, a social anthropologist and assistant professor at American University's Department of Anthropology. He's currently working on a book titled "Tip of the Spear: at The Long Attica Rebellion and Prison Pacification in the Empire State." When we were talking about the sort of preconditions of this rebellion, the material conditions inside the the prison across the country, and then there's the moment the rebellion breaks out. And I'm I'm actually going to skip by it because it's doing a lot of this historical reading. Uh, and, and thinking about this moment, it's actually kind of really messy and it's hard to describe exactly what happened. A lot of contingencies. So we kind of want to skip by. And after a few hours, the men inside had established themselves in control of one of the yards of Attica. Once that happened and they found themselves in charge of this institution, what did they do next, Mari?
6: Yeah, um, one of the things that they did was to um, uh, organize to create a set of specific demands that were shorter than that long uh, list of demands, 27 demands that they had given just the summer, earlier in the summer, to the uh, superintendent of the uh, Attica prison. Um, And they basically just you know, ask for people to come and observe. Um, so they bring in a whole set of observers from the outside. And one of those observers is, um, a reporter from the New York times. Uh, there's also, uh, you know, some lawyers, some community members, and they just begin to negotiate. Um, they want these demands to be met. And, uh, they say that if they're not met, they would actually kill some of the people that they had taken hostage. Um, That never actually happens, but that's what they they say at the time. And they also call for um, a bunch of other kinds of, you know, concessions. And one of them is that they be given amnesty uh, for anything that happened during this particular time. And so, yeah, so that begins kind of the set of a four-day supposed negotiation, which was really never a negotiation. Um, Rockefeller, who was the governor at the time, had already set and decided pretty early on that they were going to, quote, retake the prison um, by any means necessary. And so it was basically just four days, four nights of supposed negotiation that takes place at that point. Uh, but I think Ori would have a lot more to uh, add to this as well.
3: Yeah. Ori, Ori, Burton. I wanted to ask how the men inside actually ran the prison while they were in control.
6: Yeah, I mean, um
7: So it emerges as like total disorder or perfect disorder as George Jackson would call it It was total chaos. And um, as the story goes, which I've heard from numerous people, uh, someone named Roger Champin, who was a well-respected person in Attica, stood up on a coffee table and we don't know what he said, those exact words have been lost to history. But in one of the interviews he does with Tom Wicker, he recalls that what he said was the wall surrounds us all, the wall surrounds us all, right? And we heard in the early um, archival portions, um, how the um, white prisoners were talking about how the sort of population was so divided, right? And so from what I understand, after, champion relays this message everyone just kind of springs into action no one had to be really told what to do it's actually a beautiful example of self-organization right there's this protracted period of organization prior to Attica but then in the moment there's this beautiful mix of organization and spontaneity where people who are have specific kinds of expertise take it upon themselves to solve certain problems so One of them who has electrical expertise establishes a public address system. (laughs) Members of the Nation of Islam take it upon themselves to protect the guards from further harm because many of the incarcerated people had scores they wanted to settle and would have loved to have just taken them out right there on the spot. So they made sure that that didn't happen. Uh, Elections were held where people who had already um, accrued and accumulated respect among the population um, were were selected to lead. They created a medical bay. Um, they created an area for politics. They created an area for leisure. So what we really have is a reorganization of the yard and of uh, the space within Attica. It really takes on the form of a commune, a maroon commune, if you will. Um, so, you know, it's, it, I, think, I think this is really one of the enduring lessons of Attica, right? Is the extent to which if, an opportunity is created, people can organize themselves, right? And they made conscious decisions that, yes, they wanted the news media in, they wanted negotiators in so that the world could actually watch watch what was happening. And again, this is a lesson learned from the previous rebellions that I mentioned. They wanted people to see what was happening. And the main reason why we're talking about Attica now, 50 years later, is because cameras were there. Because the same thing that happened in Attica happened elsewhere. The only difference is that the guards and the police didn't come in with guns and they didn't come in with cameras. So we actually don't know about it. And so that was really an ingenious political move on their part.
3: Yeah, you know, it is one of the shocking things looking back from today that they were able to get outside observers and negotiators in. You mentioned Tom Wicker, a very prominent journalist who was able to go inside, had incredible access. Uh, inside the the prison can you tell us more Mariam about how the role that these outside negotiators played and observers especially as we know now as you mentioned that it seemed like Governor Rockefeller had basically was set against actually you know some of the core demands you know from the very first moment of the rebellion
6: yeah I mean I think that you know you know, what Ori mentioned before about the ingeniousness of having um, the press directly inside really cannot be um, underestimated because, you know, one of the reasons we have a record in the way that we do, um, for example, is, you know, Tom Wicker, when um, he leaves, when, you know, after the rebellion, uh, basically writes a book um, that is still kind of one of, in my opinion, one of the best direct um, examples of uh, kind of helping us to understand something that's happening in real time. A Time to Die um, was a book that I used in my research and was really helpful in that kind of way. Um, You know, they had uh, William Kunstler, Who ends up becoming a lawyer that many people uh, know because uh, he's like a kind of a left lawyer? Um, He comes in and he's one of the observers. And there's a really famous photo for those of you who are photographers and interested in photo of Kunstler in the yard holding a microphone, having a, you know, not a microphone, but, you know, one of those uh, loudspeakers talking from the loudspeaker from inside the the prison. and I think, to me, just a, a thinking again, I want to like remind us of kind of the inside outside relationships that need to happen on a regular basis. That was a beautiful example of that of folks who uh, kind of you know came into the prison to advocate. And to basically say these demands are legitimate demands and that the state should actually respond to the demands in a nonviolent, positive way. Um, So I think that was really, really important. And it's a basis of, I think, ongoing organizing today um, when we think about inside-outside strategies and the fact that people on the inside often need people on the outside to be speaking out because they can't be heard in the same kind of way. And so that's something I was thinking about.
3: You know, I, I want to talk about who some of the people were inside this prison, what they were in there for, and you know, we heard at the very top, we heard Elliot L. D. Barkley, uh, who was sort of became the spokesperson um, for a lot of the the men inside Attica, and you know, one of the things that really struck me was he only had a few days left on his sentence, um, and yet he was still out there in a, in a way that he knew that he was something was likely to, to happen to him. So what were people inside this prison for? Was it all very serious crimes or was there sort of a mix? How did that work, Ori? Well,
7: it was a mix. I mean, they were in prison for all the things that one could be in prison for, for low-level drug offenses to you know, the most egregious things that one could imagine someone getting incarcerated for, right? The thing about Attica is that within the landscape of the uh, New York prison system, Attica, along with a couple other prisons is known as sort of the, the last stop or the dumping ground. And so it's understood to be one of the most repressive repressive prisons within the New York state prison system. And so, you know, Um, malcontents, uh, the incorrigibles, the uh, troublemakers, as the administration used to call them and still does, um, would get sent there. And the idea was that they would be brutalized and beaten into shape. Um, The introduction mentioned that many of the guards, that all of the guards were white, which is true. It didn't mention that many of them belonged to white supremacist organizations, including but not limited to uh, the Ku Klux Klan. Um, And so this was really a regime of terror where um, uh, some of the most um, uh, uh, recalcitrant and rebellious prisoners were sent in order to kind of beat them into shape. I did want to say one other thing about the um, observers committee, which is that, you know, um, the Attica brothers made a list of the observers that they wanted to come in. But those aren't the only observers who came in. Rockefeller and Oswald also invited observers in. So there, was, there were political Oswald, splits. Oswald, the prison
3: commissioner in New York, yeah. That's
7: obviously. right. So there were political splits within the observers committee. And ultimately their role was to distill what they thought the demands were, right? So they spent all day on the second day of the rebellion listening to the various grievances of the Attica brothers. And then they used that to create a list of what they understood the demands to be. Mm. Then they took that list to Oswald, who only allowed the sort of liberal right-wing faction of the observers to participate in a further process of refining the demands, which ultimately get ratified as the so-called Attica demands. So Mariam is exactly right when she says that there was no negotiation. There wasn't a negotiation. And in fact, when you listen to L.D. Barkley's speech, at the beginning of his speech on the first day of the rebellion, he prefaces his speech by saying, "This, these are the demands that we want. These are not the demands that anyone wants for us." And then he reads the five immediate demands, which are never ratified. Right. So I think there's some confusion about what we're talking about when we talk about the quote-unquote Attica demands.
3: Got it. I want to get to the what happened as the rebellion ends, which is the government, state government, of New York goes in by force. Um, Can you tell us about that, Ori Burton?
7: Yeah, well, um, it was a massacre. It was um, intentionally designed to unfold without planning, right? The fact that there was no plan was the plan, right? Which is similar to how massacres unfold in military situations um, throughout history and all over the world, right? They went in with the understanding that they would just unleash uh, brutal violence. It began with um, filling the yard with uh, CS gas, which immediately incapacitated everyone in the yard. So at that point, if they wanted to retake the prison, so-called retake the prison with minimal loss of life, they could have done that as they had done in Auburn as they had done in the New York City jails. They didn't wanna do that. Rockefeller was, um, he had long had presidential ambitions and he looked at Attica through the lens of counterinsurgency warfare, which I could say more about if folks are interested, but um, so it was intended to be a public display of violence. And so the um, members of the, the state troopers and prison guards basically shot indiscriminately into the yard Um, killing dozens of people, incarcerated people, as well as 10 of their own guards. They maimed hundreds of others, um, including um, inflicting wounds that resulted in amputations, um, loss of eyes, loss of hearing, blindness, paralysis. Um, And then they proceeded to engage in a distended period of what we might liken to a slave seasoning ritual where they stripped them naked, they sexually violated them, they beat them and performed all kinds of uh, ritualized white supremacist patriarchal violence on them as a way to sort of reassert their dominance over them. Mm-hmm. So that's what happened. Yeah. I
3: want to bring in some callers now that we've sort of traced the, the arc and it's really awful. And um, Bob from San Francisco, welcome to the show.
0: Um, hi. I, I would request some context from, uh, from the um, uh, speakers. Um, right now, I, I have to tell you honestly that what's coming off here is uh, a sense that what you're saying is that the people who are incarcerated at, uh, at, at Attica were all simply uh, freedom fighters. The vast majority who should never have been incarcerated, they, you know, there are more difficult people kind of like the, you know, the uh, rebellious uh, hero of cuckoo's nest who rebels against uh, unfair oppression and, and so on. I'm, I'm not really commenting on the issues of how awful the place was, how terrible the food was, how, how unfair the, the treatment of, of, of the, the population was. And, um, and it's, function as kind of a virtual slavery in some sense, because if people were uh, compensated well and they could use that compensation, for instance, for, uh, for, for the victims in in some cases that that that's quite different than getting paid nothing. So I'm not commenting on that. I, I, but I would like a statement from the people speaking. Are you arguing that, you know, the vast majority of people shouldn't have been incarcerated and that they're just, this is an example of uh, of of freedom fighters. Thank you for that, Bob. Uh,
3: Mariam, I feel like you may be the perfect person to answer this.
6: I don't think I'm the perfect person to answer this, um, particularly because I think the caller has already made their point, you know, the point for me, which is that um, it's impossible to divorce what happened to these folks from their treatment right? Which was deeply and profoundly inhumane. And it doesn't matter to me whether the caller thinks that everybody inside was a freedom fighter or not. These were human beings and they deserve to be treated as such. So I think for me, um, that's like, I actually want to just say that, you know, with respect, I think you can't just say you accept, you know, like, I'm not arguing this part, but I want to make sure that everybody knows that supposedly the people on the inside were not all freedom fighters. That is not the point that either Ori or myself made, that everybody inside was a freedom fighter. In fact, we just, you know, Ori just mentioned before that there were all different types of people locked up at Attica. And some of those folks who were locked up were freedom fighters. Yes, absolutely. But what does that matter in the great scheme of things? So I think that to me is my answer to that. And I think if you can put aside the treatment of people before during and after Attica and put that as an incidental, that's troubling deeply to me.
3: We're talking about the 50th anniversary of the Attica prison rebellion, its legacy, and the continued struggle for prison reform and abolition with Mariam Kaba, an organizer, founder, and director of Project Nia, Ori Burton, a social anthropologist and assistant professor at American University, who's also working on a book called Tip of the Spear, The Long Attica Rebellion and Prison Pacification in the Empire State. Do you remember the Attica Prison Rebellion, the killing of George Jackson at San Quentin? What are your memories of that time and of the news coverage? Give us a call now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can email your questions to forum at kqed.org. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We've been talking about the 50th anniversary of the Attica Prison Rebellion, which began uh, on this day 50 years ago. Joining us now is Eric Cummins, author of The Rise and Fall of California's Radical Prison Movement. Uh, Welcome to the show, Eric. Thank
4: you for having me. Hello, Ori. Hello, Miriam. I'm happy to join you. I'm really interested by what you've said. Yeah, Yeah. I'm a California historian and prison historian. And so I'll see what I can add to this discussion. Yeah, that's what I was hoping. You know, we've had Mariam
3: Kaba from Project Nia and Ari Burton from American University has been working on a book about Attica. And they've been telling us a lot about Attica itself and the the uh, prisoner movement, rights movement that existed, um, you know, leading into and, and coming out of Attica. And I was hoping you could connect up what happened here in California during the 1960s, 70s and, and on into the 1990s, like, what was the effect um, that Attica had here in California?
4: Well, it Attica just uh, became part of a constellation of events happening all over the country. There were prison riots and strikes everywhere across the land in the 1970s, in 1970, 71, 72. And uh, California was no exception to that. In fact, there were direct contacts between um, Californian inmates and the inmates at Attica. The list of demands uh, uh, in the Attica Manifesto uh, was was rewritten in some form from a list of demands at um, a November 1970 um, uh, list of demands from a strike at Folsom Prison. So there were direct contacts uh, between these groups of, of inmates, um, and one of the things that I I, that I don't want us to forget mentioning is uh, one of the long-term effects of both Attica and the George Jackson killing at San Quentin in 1971 were uh, a, a rise of a radical retributive right wing. Mm-hmm that came down on these uh, nascent prisoner rights movements across the land and and really led to the creation of a new kind of prison. That's our maxi maxi, the security housing unit prisons. In 1972 or 73, after the George Jackson incident, Mo Camacho, who was head of the CCPOA, the California Guard Union, called for the uh, creation of new maximum security prisons, smaller units, uh, surveillance technology, um, uh, reduction of human contact, really our, our security housing units uh, evolved as a right-wing reaction to this prisoner activism. And that, it really has to be underscored. Because that, that's the work that we still need to do. The prisoner reform movement did not end in 71, 72. It goes on today, and there's plenty of work to be done reforming this, this inhumane system. Yeah.
3: Let's bring in Anthony from San Jose. Welcome to the show.
5: So yes, uh, thank you for your guest. Um, it's really tempting to think that in the 50 years since uh, the Attica uprising, things have improved. But, in fact, if we look at it, uh, Attica was just the, the beginning of the period of mass incarceration. And um, and in California, the advent of extremely long and harsh sentences uh, that were brought in by the three strikes and other and gang enhancements, etc., so now we have a population in California that is uh, despite a federal consent decree to reduce population. California prisons are still operating at about one hundred and ten percent of capacity. We have uh, about one hundred and three thousand inmates in uh, actually in prison and many and fifty thousand on parole. So we have this huge carceral population that uh, just has uh, expanded greatly since Attica. And the sentences are far, far longer. This has broken up families, and it provides a disincentive for prisoners to actually rehabilitate themselves in prison. Because if you've got a 30- or 40-year sentence, you know you're going to die there. Why do you have to improve, or why do you have to rehabilitate yourself? So it's a disincentive to rehabilitate prisoners and to release them into their communities and their families. And finally, I would just say one other thing, the, one of the um, uh, the witnesses to, to Attica, who was quoted earlier, uh, talked about the working conditions in prisons. Uh, people should know that Uh, prisoners are required to work by law. You have no choice. If you don't work, you get sent to solitary, you lose your good time credits, life becomes very difficult for you. You have no choice. And in California, you work for $0.08 to $0.37 an hour. And also by federal law, you cannot contribute to Social Security. So a man who works in prison for 20 or 30 years and is now... You know, 55 or 60 years old, he gets out without the possibility of Social Security, without Medicare. Um, he's unable to support himself or his family. So the harsh conditions of Attica have just changed and morphed into something a little bit more subtle, but equally as pernicious and dehumanizing and deadly.
3: Thank you for that uh, comment, Anthony. Mariam, Given that, given what, what Anthony just laid out in pretty tremendous detail, what has the movement of people inside and outside done to try to counter some of these conditions?
6: Thank you for that question. And thank you so much to Anthony for laying it out in the way that they just did, because um, I just want to. Echo one point in particular that Anthony made, and then I will answer your question for sure, um, is that you know we are dealing to this day with wage theft under force, right? Um, incarcerated people are forced to work for private corporations, state-owned corporations, when they have work, you know, uh, for correctional agency, They're making an average of eighty-six cents per day. Um, There are five states, Alabama, Arkansas, Georgia, Mississippi, Texas, where incarcerated people are forced forced to work under threat of further punishment for no pay. There's about $14 billion of wages stolen from incarcerated workers every single year in this country. We have to be real about what's happening on the inside, and incarcerated people are at the forefront of fighting for justice around these issues. I want to make sure that people go and check out, take a look at endtheexception.com, which is a site that's doing a lot of work around this wage theft. I want to encourage people to take a look at the Jailhouse Lawyers Speak, who are working on the national shutdown demonstrations that are happening today, actually, all around the country, um, to basically say, like, you know, these campaigns of trying to quote, improve conditions, and you know, ensure that people have actually rights, human rights, to survive and live and live with dignity and not be tortured. These are things that are happening. People are struggling for that today. I want to also point out, in our case, I'm part of an organization called Survived and Punished that I co-founded, and we are currently fighting um, in New York State with the New York State Department of Corrections because people, are, our inside members are telling us that they are not able to drink water from the water system because there's a terrible taste happening. That the water that they're using to shower is giving, leaving them with rashes. And that we are trying right now, just this minute today, we have an opportunity for people to join us in a phone zap to insist that they handle the situation. And they will not allow for people, family members on the outside to send potable water to their incarcerated loved ones who cannot drink the water at the facility in this current moment. So, you know, these struggles are ongoing. These struggles continue to this day, this minute. And we desperately need people to understand that the first and foremost thing for me is obviously to abolish prisons. But if you're going to not be on that side, at the very least, be part of the process of ensuring that people have conditions that are livable in as we work towards the end of these institutions. So I, I just really you know, want to yeah. thank Anthony for bringing up what they brought up.
3: And I just want to say the the website you mentioned was End the Exception, which is uh, an exception to the 13th Amendment, uh, it says neither slavery nor involuntary uh, servitude, except as a punishment for crime, which is why people who work inside uh, can be forced to work for nothing. Eric um, Cummins, I wanted to ask you to kind of give us the California perspective on the, the evolution of the of, uh, of these prisons, um, you know from the 70s and, and onward. you know, you talked about the development of these new Maxi-Maxi uh, prisons. It also seems like there's been other things that have happened though, within California's uh, penal system.
4: Certainly. yeah, One thing that really needs to be underscored here is that with the Attica incident and then George Jackson killing at San Quentin and that whole constellation of, of events, This really spelled the end of the treatment prison in California and nationwide. So so this kind of dovetails on what Miriam was saying. Um, In addition to this wage slavery, we're looking at a period after this point of of, uh, severe restriction of education, library services, all sorts of rehabilitative programs. by 1977 in California, we had passed the determinate sentencing law, which defined in writing that the purpose of prison, imprisonment in California was no longer the rehabilitation of inmates. It was purely for punishment. And that's certainly the period we're in now. So, so these two events, Attica and George Jackson and, and all of the rest of it, spelled the end of the treatment prison, the rehabilitative prison. And we're in a hard new era now. Um, And that's really important.
3: Yeah. Um, I want to bring in Richard from San Francisco. Welcome to the show. Thank you. And I I really
2: want to thank your guests for their uh, really tremendous presentations. I I live in San Francisco now, but I'm from Rochester. Uh, I wasn't in New York State when the rebellion happened, but returned shortly after and one of the things that there was tremendous support in Rochester and Buffalo uh, for the prison rebellion. And in order to try to bring that down, to end that, and, uh, the, after the massacre took place, the state announced that the 11 guards had all been castrated and murdered by the inmate. Mm-hmm. It was only because a deputy medical examiner in Monroe County, which is Rochester's county, He said, no, that's not true. They were all killed with the same bullets that killed the the prisoners. Uh, And that was was a start of trying to wear down the movement and support. I attended all the arraignments that took place in Warsaw, New York, in January and February of 1973. It was almost a year and a half after the rebellion. And the prisoners were being brought in. uh, They were in terrible condition, many of them still. Uh, from the time of the rebellion, many people, you could tell, had suffered severe injury. Uh, and and uh, at that time, the judge stretched out the 62, there were 62 indictments over six weeks. So this is an attempt to wear down the support, but it didn't. And in, in terms of the long rebellion, this was an issue in upstate New York, and I think all of upstate New York and much of the country, that persisted. And it persisted finally in January of 1976 that Governor then, Hugh Carey, uh, ordered all the charges to be dropped and those who had been convicted or accepted plea deals to be exonerated, uh, to their sentences to be commuted, because it wasn't going away. So, in, in fact, it really was, and I think continues right down to today, to be uh, so impactful a uh, a rebellion that that has a, a tremendous resonance and impact down to the present
3: thank you Richard from San Francisco ori burton with uh american university you know one of the key questions for me around this is you know when we look at what the state's response was to this period of activism and we see mass incarceration really taking off in you know seventy one seventy two seventy three but we also know that this rebellion inspired radical activism for, for decades afterwards. Like, how, how do we try and uh, make sense of an event like this that had um, such a profound impact on the, the state of the, the country?
7: Well, I mean, I think about Attica as a genealogy, right, that has branches connected to it from all different kind of um you know, political trajectories, right? And so we could trace a kind of um, a, 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 a kind of um, a, a genealogy that follows the the pragmatic demands and try to understand the extent to which certain reforms were implemented or not, right? Or we could do uh, something different, which is to trace the uh, radical revolutionary political genealogy of which there are sort of numerous outgrowths, right? And so immediately after, so so part of what happens is Rockefeller um, authorizes the massacre under the assumption that it's going to um, dampen prison rebellion. But subsequent to that, there's a prison rebellion in Baltimore that's in solidarity with Attica, There's a prison rebellion in a federal women's prison in Alderson that's in solidarity with Attica and a number of solidarity actions, both inside and outside prisons. And what the last caller said is really important because we can't overestimate the extent to which, uh, the extent to which supporters of the prison movement were actually also targeted and, targeted for different strategies and ways to sort of cleave them from support for the radical prison movement right and that that was an ongoing process of thinking about not only how do we prevent future rebellions from happening on the inside and part of the answer to that question are the supermax prisons so i agree with um eric cummings there the only thing i would disagree with is that it wasn't solely a right-wing project liberals also advocated for uh, those high security prisons and they often called it rehabilitation, right? So we, we have to understand that, but they also operated on outside support for the prison movement. They had strategies designed to dampen that outside support. So I think that's really key.
3: Thank you so much. We have been talking about the 50th anniversary of the Attica prison rebellion, its legacy and the continued struggle around prisons with Mariam Kaba, an organizer, founder, and director of Project Nia, Ori Burton, who you just heard, an assistant professor at American University's Department of Anthropology, and Eric Cummins, author of The Rise and Fall of California's Radical Prison Movement. I want to get to a couple of questions as we end here. Kate writes, Mariam, I've been reading and following your work online and in print for a few years, and you've deeply impacted my thoughts on prison abolition and transformative justice more than any other contemporary thinker. Thank you for your thorough, compassionate, And bold work listeners should read. We do this till they free us. And then Ruth has a memory from hearing the massacre in the news. Ruth writes, this is an excerpt from a letter I wrote to my husband who was in Japan while my three young children and I were in New York. I can't forget this terrible memory. 50 years ago in Manhattan, I was glued to the radio nonstop because that was the week of the Attica prison uprising, which ended on September 13th. That night, the kids saw that I was completely removed and ran around chasing each other until I finally got them into bed. Governor Rockefeller, who had refused to go to the prison, ordered in state troopers who killed 10 hostages and 29 inmates. I listened to a dead prisoner's wife and cried myself to sleep. The New York State Special Commission on Attica wrote, With the exception of Indian massacres in the late 19th century, the state police assault, which ended the four-day prison uprising, was the bloodiest one-day encounter between Americans since the Civil War. Thank you to all of our guests, as well as all of our listeners for their memories. I'm Alexis Madrigal, this is Forum. Stay tuned for another hour with Mina Kim.